for those that don't know me, uh, my name is Paul Stiver. Uh, I am on staff at Hope, and I, I so I kind of have two roles. I work with our Leadership Development Institute, primarily spending a lot of time at downtown, uh, although that program is available to anyone and everyone in all of our locations, Columbia Heights here, Lower Town, St. Paul, and downtown. Uh, I also am a pastoral resident at Hope Lower Town, and, and it is my privilege, my honor to be here this morning. I love coming to Heights. Uh, this is my second time here, uh, and of our second time here, I should say. Uh, the last time we were here, uh, Allison, my wife, was pregnant with that little guy, and actually we shared that. He's now born. He is now born. Okay, that, let, let's try it again. He's now born. All right, thank you. Um, so uh, this is, and this is, I just want to show real quickly, this is, what, what? I miss it. This is little baby Chase, uh, and this is kind of the fun side of parenting. Uh, he is our first. This is him at his baby dedication. Uh, I'm not sure if it counts if he's asleep when he gets dedicated, but we're going to say that it counts. Uh, and then that's just a little photo shoot. That's the fun side, but I wanted to share a little bit of also the reality side. Being our first, this was one thing they don't tell you uh, when you have your first set. They let you drive home with them. They let you take them home. They actually let you have the kid. It's your kid. And so I wanted to show the reality side of parenting. I love this picture. Uh, he's just inconsolable. We've had a few of these moments. Uh, here's Allison making a classic parenting face, I feel like, just like, uh, be, just exasperated. Because the reality is we don't, in a lot of this, we don't know what we're doing. We are learning every day and, and failing many times. And, and we don't know what we're doing with our first kid here. But as we're going to look at our passage today, we're going to see God knows what he's doing. God always knew what he was doing. He's not figuring things out as he goes like we are. He's, and then what we're going to see is that he's actually going to do something unexpected. That what he knew what he was going to do is totally mind-boggling to us. So we are in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, and we're going to have our sermon titled, God's Plan A. We're really going to think about what was God's plan A and how does he accomplish it. This is already week 10 in the book of Ephesians. And we're looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, if you want to start flipping your Bible. But first, we're going to see where have we been in Ephesians to this point. More recently, chapter 2, we saw uh, verses 1 through 10, we kind of saw this pattern outlined. That we were dead in sin, uh, deserving of wrath, big word, and, and God in His grace made us alive with Christ, actually transforms us and now calls us into good works that He has prepared for us and given us to do. And so that's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Then we move to Ephesians 2, 11 through 21, which kind of, if that was our individual kind of level of salvation, this is the more corporate or cosmic level that we were described as a people who were far away from God, hostile to one another and to God, strangers, alienated language, distant. And then we saw in that section of Ephesians 2 that Jesus is our peace. He actually himself is our peace. He comes to earth and makes peace by the blood of his cross. And that transforms not only individuals, but whole people groups and communities as we now are united together. We're, the language to describe us now is near and united that we are God's family. Uh, Lynn Kohick in her commentary says this of that passage, Christ's purpose is to make something new from what was, were once two. 
This new thing is his body, the church, which now has access in Christ to God the Father through the Spirit. The cross is not only the place where believers' sins are forgiven, but also the place where something new is created. The new creation is not simply individual, but a new entity, Christ's body, the church. And so in Ephesians, then in this letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is writing to this new entity. He's writing to this church And so that's where we are at, continuing on in that letter that he's writing in chapter 3. We're going to read it and make a few comments. Starting in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. He continues, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. And so that's our passage, and we're going to unpack a few things starting with Uh, Is the Apostle Paul a narcissist? He really seems to talk a lot about himself. We've got to make sense of that. We've got to understand that. So we're going to look back at the Apostle Paul's role and and how he sees his role. He's he's not a narcissist talking about just how great he is and what he's called to in God's plan. He is establishing credibility with his audience, and especially because he's in jail. This is a new uh, group of believers who are wondering, wait, this guy, this leader of ours, this guy who's telling us this gospel about Jesus is in prison? Should we really be following this guy if he's locked up? We're going to understand why. Uh, Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he goes on, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation As I have already written briefly, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So he's saying, I've I've received this insight. He continues, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. And so we see language of Paul calling himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus, a, a servant of this gospel, receiving this servanthood, this call to proclaim, this call to make plain through the gift 
of God's grace. Paul is called by God's grace to serve the gospel. To get a little context of that, we've got to go to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 9, the apostle Paul is, is Saul at this time, and he's persecuting believers in Christ. He's a Jewish leader, and he's given authority from Jewish leaders to go and persecute followers of Christ, to tell them to repent. They're blaspheming God. And on his journey to Damascus, he's greeted by the Lord himself. And the Lord says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with his people to the Apostle Paul that he says, you're not persecuting my people, you're persecuting me. But he blinds the Apostle Paul and he sends him for three days to to go and sit in his blindness. And that's where we pick up this. The Lord now talking to Ananias, a brother, someone who knew of Paul. and says, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, go to the Apostle Paul. And Ananias said, don't you know who he is? And Jesus says, no, go to him. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Later, he talks about this in the epistle to the Galatians. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached, you Ephesians, you Galatians, I want you to know, the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. My call, part of my call, the Apostle Paul is saying, is to serve the gospel is receiving this revelation. I didn't dream it up. I didn't get it from other wise people. I didn't seek the philosophies of this world to understand it. I received it by revelation. God disclosed it to me. God reveals, God makes mysteries known. So that's the Apostle Paul's role. Then we have to think about what is this revelation? What was revealed to him? What was this mystery made known to him? And we see right here, he says in verse 4, it is the mystery of Christ. Why is Paul given this grace? Why is Paul called to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery? Why is he given this grace to make it plain, to declare what was hidden, to bring it to light? Which kind of rubs us the wrong way because we live in the Google age now. I don't know how many, it's literally probably 10 times a day that I, I, oh, I got to Google that. What's going on with our kid? What's the weather? What's this? What's that thing? What's that word? How do you spell that word? I'm just like, I got to Google it. I'm always Googling. In the Google age, we can't imagine knowledge being hidden. The whole reason Google exists is to hunt down knowledge and make it known. But the thing is, we can't Google revelation. I mean, you can type in the word revelation, you can Google it. But we can't Google revelation. It's God revealing himself to us, and he does it in his own timing and in his own way. So how does he do that? First Peter, the apostle Peter says this. In, ver- in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, Peter says, 
concerning this salvation, the thing that's been revealed, concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So just for context, we've got these prophets in the Old Testament. They're searching the scriptures. They're proclaiming prophecies. They're calling out what is going to be. And yet the apostle Peter says they're looking into these things. They're trying to understand what is going to be revealed. The time, the circumstances. And Peter, along with Paul, is saying these things have now been revealed. What was waiting for, what we were waiting for, is this revelation and it comes in God's way. As the Apostle Peter says, through the preaching of the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven and even angels want to see into this. God, what are you going to do? What's your plan? What do you got? What's the timing? There's this waiting anticipation from prophets, from angels and we see that God is going to reveal and real quickly, we see this actually the plan of redemption accomplished by all three members of the Trinity, for those that maybe are new to Christianity and, and for those that aren't, the Trinity is a tough thing to fully understand. But the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity means that God exists as three persons, but he is one. So he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in this great, glorious mystery, this plan of redemption, we see different members of the Trinity playing different roles. The Father, if you recall Ephesians 1, he plans redemption. He's the one who sends the Son. The Son obeys. The Son comes. He comes and goes to the cross. He accomplishes redemption. He's the one who makes peace. And then the Holy Spirit now comes and is sent by the Father and the Son to be the revealer, to make this mystery known, to reveal this mystery. But again, what mystery? And for that, we go to another letter from the Apostle Paul, the epistle to the Colossians. In Colossians 1 uh, and into two, it says this. He, Christ, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Now the Apostle Paul tells us what he's doing. He says, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may be deceived by fine-sounding arguments. So this time of revelation has come and now Paul wants to do everything he can so that we have the full riches of understanding. We remember him praying for that earlier in Ephesians. He prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. We're going to see that next week, that he's praying for us to know that which is beyond knowledge. What is this mystery? What does he want us to know? Why does he labor and suffer? Why does he toil? Why does he endure? Why does he write letters from prison? 
to make Jesus plain, to make Jesus clear so that everyone will know him. We, that's uncommon for us. We live in a paywall culture. If anyone of you, like this is me, I'm, I'm like Googling, oh, I got to read that news article and I hit the news article and then it pops up with this. You've reached your free article limit and I'm like, I just need to know the news. Can you tell me? But I got to subscribe, I guess. But we live in a paywall culture. We do. If you go, if you follow a, a, an influencer, for example, someone on Instagram, someone on Facebook that's offering you a way to get fit or a way to do this or that, the further you get into following, the further you get into seeking information, the more money you're called to invest. Sign up for this program. Invest over here. This is why self-help books are so popular. Every self-help book is painting a picture of what true life is. Here's how to find life. Here's what's going to give you meaning and purpose. Here's, what, here's the wisdom. Here's the mystery you've got to tap into by my book. Come to my conferences. Conspiracy theories become more popular because they're promising to deliver on a mystery. They're saying there's something deep hidden and only I know how to reveal it. Follow my page, read my articles. But the reality of the gospel is there are no paywalls. There are no paywalls for the gospel of grace that God has made his gospel known in Jesus. He's revealed the mystery and all he wants to do now and all the apostle Paul wants to do and all we are called to do is keep making that mystery made known. Keep making Christ be made known. God wants the gospel to be made plain. So he doesn't put up a paywall. But he equips people. And this is, we see Christ as the mystery of who is revealed. But back to our passage, verse 6 here, we see another mystery. First we saw who is revealed. Now we see the result of the revelation. Paul says this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. For all of human history, there's been this great division. Jew and Gentile separated. The Jews being God's called people in the Old Testament. The Gentiles, anyone else, any other nation, not knowing the true God, not knowing how to worship the true God. But Paul says, now that this mystery is revealed, another mystery happens. A people is formed, one body. Those who inherit the promise, we call that people the church. The mystery here is that the church is formed through the gospel. So we've got to talk about what do we think about the church? When you hear that word, what comes to mind? Maybe uh, a childhood comes to mind. Maybe uh, past experiences. Maybe past hurts. Maybe you just think church is a building where people go. The church exists. Maybe, well, I don't know why the church exists. I guess the church maybe exists to help good people get better. The church exists so people have the chance to get better, the chance to learn, the chance to grow. Maybe you think the church is where good people go and belong. It's where acceptable people are allowed. So we have to ask, what is the church for? Why does it exist? If this people has been formed through this gospel, why do they exist? And Paul continues again, 
saying that he wants to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was hidden, kept hidden in God who created all things. And now here we see this is this, his intent. This is God. What was God doing? Why did he keep the information back until just the right time? So that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he has accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. We see this God who created all things. Now bringing them all to completion, accomplishing the eternal purpose, the timeless purpose that he had in Christ. And what does he want to do? He wants to put his wisdom on display through the church. He wants to put his glory on display right there in verse 10. Through the church, the wisdom of God should be made known in the cosmic realms. Not only on earth, but everywhere. This was his eternal purpose. So we've got to go actually back to the account of creation here, Genesis chapter 3, to get a grasp, a better grasp on this eternal purpose that God has and that he's accomplished in Christ. So Genesis 3, 7 through 10, just for context, God creates the world and things are good. Everything is good. Light is in the world. Human beings are in perfect relationship with God and one another. There's harmony, there's peace, there's joy, there's nearness and intimacy. But then Satan the serpent comes and tempts the Adam and Eve and says, God's holding back. God's got something hidden from you better than him. And so they choose to sin. And when they do, it says here in verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to them, where are you? He answered, the man answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. The beginning of the story shows human beings choosing sin over God, then trying to cover ourselves with the work of our hands. But the result is just fear and shame and hiding and eventually banishment from God's good presence. I was thinking about shame. And the school bus came to mind, of course, naturally. <laughs> so I was thinking about shame. And one of the times that I really felt shame. So this is a picture of a school bus. When I was a kid, when I was in middle school, I rode the school bus to school. I had to get up. Uh, I used to get up at uh, like 5.30 so I could not only gel my hair, but then hairspray it. Guys, it was like a helmet. I, like, what was I so worried about that my hair would move slightly? I mean, it was like you could literally, it was like a second, uh, second skull. Anyway, so I'm getting up early. I'm waiting for the bus. I get on the bus. And I always was, I would go maybe to the, the cool kids sat in the back of the bus. 
So I would go maybe to the fourth row. I wouldn't dare go third or second or very back of the bus. Too risky. Not until all the cool kids got off the bus would I dare sit at the back. But I remember you can turn and you can kind of put your leg up and you can face the back and kind of create a little uh, conversational um, circle. By And I remember I was sitting one day facing the back, facing one of the cool kids, thinking, man, I really, I kind of belong. I'm kind of fitting in. I'm kind of in this conversation. And one of the kids, one of the cooler kids sitting in the very back row looked at me and said, what are you looking at? And made it very clear in a split second that I didn't belong. I wanted to melt into that seat. I turned around and never sat in the back again because I was ashamed. I was rejected. I didn't belong. And now this is the story, when we think about this shame, this rejection, this not belonging, this is not only the story of of the Bible and what God's going to do about it, but it's the story of human history. This is the big question that started in the beginning. When we see people trying to cover themselves, we see people with sin and shame and rejection, the question being asked by the rulers and the authorities and by every human that's ever lived is, God, what are you going to do with shameful sinners? which going back to our passage is why verse 12 is so shocking, so unexpected. The mystery being revealed that in Christ and through faith in Him, we can now approach God with freedom and confidence. With safety and security. This shocks the rulers, shocks the authorities, shocks the world. That in God's eternal purpose, which he has accomplished in Christ, what was it? To draw sinners near, to bring them back to himself. This was the eternal plan. It was the plan that was accomplished, the plan that is now being applied by the Holy Spirit, the revealer. That we no longer have a hiding but approaching. We no longer have fearful scorn. We're no longer ashamed, but we're free and confident to approach God. We live in a world that says, cast out. God says, draw near. And in fact, F.F. Bruce says it brilliantly when he describes the church now displaying the wisdom of God. He says this, this new comprehensive community of the church is to serve throughout the universe as an object lesson of the wisdom of God. His much variegated, that's a big word, wisdom. What's he saying? He's saying nothing puts God's wisdom, God's glory on display quite like sinners being saved by His grace. Object lessons, testimonies to everyone. Sitting next to us in the pews, in these seats, object lessons of His grace. What I could have been what he's making me into, that difference testifies to the only wise God. And he does that in the church. He does that through the church, that we are his little object lessons walking around, astonishing everyone. The remarkable reality that God, what was he going to do with shameful sinners? Save them, heal them, rescue them, transform them. So the church then is not an afterthought. The church is God's plan A. The church matters to God. That's why the Apostle Paul is writing this to us. 
We're not a building, but a witness. We exist for displaying God's glory, showing off his grace. Not to show how good we are, but how good he is. And this last one's tough, but this one should be true. The church is where hurting people go and belong. The church isn't the place for the acceptable and the good. It's where hurting people go and belong. Not, it's not good people getting better. It's sinners who've been rescued. And if we've been rescued, we can create space for others. A good description, one that's fun, is that the church is a hospital for sinners who found healing, who found rescue, and now are trying to point others where to find it. But the reality is that we often do hurt people, that we often don't act that way. If you guys have ever seen this video, it's called, uh, It's Not About the Nail. And she's sitting there with this guy, presumably her husband, and she's complaining of this great headache that she has. I just said, for weeks I've had this headache. All my sweaters are getting snagged. And he says, it's probably the nail. It's got to be the nail in your head. And she says, that's not what I need right now. What I need is for you to feel this with me, to be, sit there in this with me. And he says, that sounds really hard. And she then says, thank you. But that's not us, right? Or that is actually is a depiction of us, that we make it about the nail that we try to fix people. Or maybe we reject them or condemn them outright. We demand that people fit into our precious little boxes. This is what makes you okay and acceptable to me. Or we do, I do this often, I treat people as a problem to be solved instead of a person to be loved. Let me tell you how I got over that. Let me tell you how I fixed that. Hey, have you tried this? Have you read this book? Have you done this thing? Maybe. They just need to be sat with and cared for. But we won't do that. We actually are not going to do that. We're not going to be that kind of person that will sit with them and care for them, that will, will help and care for hurting people. Until we understand this grace, the, the, the magnitude of this mystery that God has revealed. And for that, I actually want to look at uh, the time right before Jesus' death when he's standing trial with Barabbas. Him and Barabbas are standing trial. Barabbas, if we don't know, is a, an insurgent, an insurrectionist who is standing condemned. And it's now the day of the feast and, and one of the people could be let free, Jesus or Barabbas. And so that's where we pick up in Matthew 27, 15 through 26, it says, Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they handed Jesus over to him. Continuing, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. Continuing, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. 
When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Barabbas the criminal set free. Jesus flogged, handed over to be crucified. When we read this in the story, we can't imagine that God would be do this. And yet this was God's plan A. God's plan A, His eternal purpose, what He was going to do was send His Son to take the place of sinners. That like Barabbas, we are dead. Guilty. Condemned. But on the cross, the innocent is crucified for the guilty. The acceptable is cast out so that we can be brought near. The righteous for the unrighteous. The beautiful one takes our sin and shame so we can have his freedom and confidence. As Paul says in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's plan was to let Barabbas go free. God's plan was to let us go free. This is the love of God that we've come to know, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when we grasp this grace, when we realize that if anybody in the story were Barabbas, it changes us. It overflows to others through us. Going back to our verse, in him, in Christ, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. What happens when we grasp this grace is that is true of this church. In Christ and through faith in Christ, here at Hope Heights, people may approach God with freedom and confidence. That's why God wants the mystery to be made plain. That's why God wants Jesus to be exalted through the preaching of the gospel. That's why he sends the revealer. When we grasp grace, when we really understand the safety and significance that we have, that God's love cannot be removed from us because we didn't earn it in the first place. We become a people who create spaces of grace, spaces that welcome the hurting, seek the lost, listen to people, care for them, stop trying to fix them, but instead point them to the only one who can, Jesus the rescuer. This is how the church lives out God's plan A. This poem here is typically used as a call to worship, but I want to use it here as we move toward response to this good news. This is used as a welcome in churches, but we'll use it here as we think about being sent out to create and show God's grace to people to play our part in God's plan A. It says, To all who are weary and in need of rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel lost and worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who fall and desire victory, to all who sin and need a Savior, and to whomever else will come 
This church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. That's the mystery of God being revealed, that Jesus is the friend of sinners, and he calls sinners together to create a body called his church so that we can now be friends to sinners and invite them to know the only rescuer, the only healer, the only one who can do this saving. I'm going to invite the band up as we move toward a time to respond. And as we do that, just feel free to consider these things, these questions. Um, as we move toward communion, there will be communion outside the doors there, on both sides of the doors there, or outside both doors. Um, and there will be people in the back to pray. You can offer any request. There's no request too small to be prayed for, and they'll delight in praying for you. Um, when it comes to taking communion, we do communion to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, to remember that he took our place, to remember that his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us, so that we can have freedom and confidence in him to draw near to God. We don't ask that you be a member of this church or any church. We just ask that you be a follower of Jesus. And if you are, we'd love to have you take those elements with us and remember what he's done. I'm going to pray to close, and then we'll continue on worshiping through song and communion. Father, we love you. And we thank you that the answer to the question of what you're going to do with sinners is draw them near. And that you do the work to draw us near by sending your son who takes our place, who takes our death, our guilt, our condemnation, our shame, and our sin. So that we now can approach you with freedom and confidence. That we now can have a greater insight into the mysteries, into this good news. That Jesus is the friend of sinners. So now God, would you be honored and glorified in our worship by your spirit? Would you help us? to be transformed this week, to be people who are friends to sinners and point others to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.